This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. Loving Father, we thank you for this part of your word and such a wonderful part and we pray that your Holy Spirit who inspired the writing would now inspire the hearing today that we might see you more clearly, love you more dearly and follow you more nearly and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our morning series, as you probably know, is called True Visions of God. We are looking at people in the scriptures who were confronted with God. This is a very valuable series for many reasons. Let me mention two. One is the world badly needs to know what God is like. I would dare to say that the greatest need in the world is that the world would know what God is like because almost everything will flow from that. When the Apostle Paul stood up in Acts 17 to preach to complete pagans, he began his sermon with two words, the God, and then he went on to speak about him. We happen to be, of course, in a world that is turning a deaf ear to God, and we need to be very shrewd and wise in the way we communicate, but there is no greater need in the world than to see what God is like. The next reason why we need this series is because the church is so easily drifting from Scripture, partly because of the busyness. Uh, We don't have the inclination to study and dig deeply into what God is like, and so we tend to be superficial. And there is, of course, a, a new God emerging in the Western world, which is a kind of a butler God, a God who demands almost nothing and is there just to... Um, produce on time for us. And this God is, of course, an invention, and uh, it will be a disillusioning God to everybody who puts their faith in this God. It's an idol. And what we badly need is to go back and see what people saw of the real God, and that will have a strangely liberating effect on us. So we're looking at the famous vision of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, You don't come to this vision or this commission until chapter 6. And I think the probable reason is because the book bursts in with a message, which is, warning, this is the only solution. And it uh, covers five chapters of urgency. And then if you stop and ask the question, who is saying this? Who has the right to talk like this? We come to Isaiah chapter 6, and the answer is, it's Isaiah saying this, and this is the reason because of this incredible vision that he was given. So this morning I want to look with you at these verses, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. We're going to do it under four very quick headings. If you're a note taker, and some people do uh, write something down which helps them, the four points go like this, vision, confession, cleansing, Commission, vision, confession, cleansing, and commission. Now, the vision in verses 1 to 3, Isaiah is given a vision of God. I suspect this is a window into heaven. And I suspect this because we're told in verse 1, the Lord is very high. And in verse 2, that he is surrounded by heavenly beings called seraphs. Seraphs not mentioned anywhere else in the scriptures, but here. 
And uh, though we say Isaiah received a vision of God, and although he says in verse 1, I saw the Lord, please notice that God is not described at all in Isaiah 6. We see the throne that he is on, we see the robe, so to speak, of his glory, and we see the seraphs announcing it, but we are not given any portrait of God. And there's a number of reasons why we are not given a portrait of God and we're not going to be given a portrait of God. Uh, One of them is, of course, in John chapter 4, that God is spirit and therefore he is not visible. Second, we're told in Exodus 33 that it is a fatal thing to see God. Man shall not see me and live, says God in Exodus 33 verse 20. So you can read the whole of the Old Testament and there'll be lots of people who say, I saw the Lord or something like it, and what they're seeing is, of course, some kind of vision or clothing of God. And so you come to John chapter 1, and John says in his gospel, nobody's seen God. You can read the whole of the Old Testament from Genesis through to Malachi, and of course there'll be many visions and there'll be many experiences, but nobody is literally seeing God. And it's not until he comes down into the person of Jesus and takes on flesh and walks amongst people, that they see him face to face. Alec Matea says, God condescends to clothe himself in a form or a vision for our warning or our comfort. That's the story of the Old Testament. And Isaiah is given something of the clothing of God's holiness, a vision of God's holiness. And what that means is that as he looks up into heaven, he sees God's great perfection, utter perfection, It's something which we can only attempt to describe. But if we were, as it were, to have the roof lifted off our building and we were given a window into heaven and we could see God's utter perfection and that he is empty of all sin and corruption and that he is absolutely full of holiness and righteousness, the effect is to make the sinful, normal person ashamed and afraid. And that's what happens to Isaiah. Even the seraphs we read in verse 2 are overwhelmed because with their wings they cover their faces, no doubt because they are unworthy to look on him, and they also cover their feet. And I suspect this means they are conscious of being unworthy to serve him or to go for him. Now, if the sinless seraphs are overwhelmed... Isaiah is, of course, completely frightened by the experience. And he says in verse 5, I am ruined, or he might have said, I am doomed. This, friends, raises a very interesting matter on the subject of visions of God because my experience over 30 years as a Christian is that people who say that they have had a vision of God, and I don't doubt that God is able to Uh, announce himself or display himself or comfort or warn uh, as he pleases. But my experience is that people who write about their visions of God or describe their visions of God almost always have a vision which comforts or secures them without upsetting or rattling their cage. And here in Isaiah chapter 6, he is given a vision which totally unsettles him. And... uh, If God shows himself to Isaiah like this, 
it is no doubt the very first thing that a person needs to know if they're to have a right relationship with God, and that is that they don't have a right relationship with God. And so he gives to Isaiah a true vision. Isaiah is never the same. He never again has a poor view of God or a small view of God, even though his contemporaries have a very poor view of God, even though the people of God have a very poor view of their God, Isaiah is never the same. I'll tell you something very strange. The Israelites of Isaiah's day have forgotten the God of creation. They've forgotten the God of the Red Sea. They've forgotten the God of Mount Sinai. They've forgotten the God who fights and wins battles. And it's a very weird thing that they would come to such a poor, small view of God until, of course, you remember what your own heart is like and you know that we're capable of doing exactly the same thing. We can speak about and sing about and hear about an absolutely huge and righteous God and then if you're like me, you can walk straight out of this building and drop the the whole subject instantly and get on with your own agenda. That's what we're capable of. And these Israelites have invented a God who they think they can control by ritual. And so back in chapter 1, in verse 13 and 14, God says to the Israelites, stop your offerings, stop your meetings. I hate your meetings, he says. I hate your assemblies. And that's how bad things have got. They're actually running the ritual and absolutely repulsing their, their God. And I think, again, we need to be very careful that we don't secretly in our brains invent a God who we domesticate by our religion and yet think is not capable of doing anything about our sinfulness. Isaiah is utterly changed by his vision and he starts to see a God who demands his repentance and also has a wonderful solution to the sin. So that's the vision. The second thing this morning is the confession. And you'll see the confession comes in verse 5. Remember the thing that really frightens Isaiah is not that God is huge, but that God is sinless and holy. And he calls out in verse 5, Woe, I'm ruined. What we would call out would be, No, I'm finished. It's all over. And he's conscious of this for two reasons. One, that God is so different from him. And the other is that he has seen God in some way, in some vision. And that, according to scripture, is a fatal experience. And so he feels not only his filth, but he also feels that he is doomed. Now, what is even more amazing and I think important than all of this is that Isaiah, in seeing God instantly identifies with his people. He doesn't um, run out of this experience and say to everybody, listen, I've seen God and I'm better than you and I've had a greater experience than you and I'm now telling you that you're in trouble. He sees what God is like and he cannot see any solution for himself and he cannot see any solution for his people. This is an extraordinarily important thing because I think the whole issue of Isaiah 6 is not to say to you from this pulpit just that God is holy and therefore what are you going to do about it? But to say to you that Isaiah 6 is proclaiming God is holy, we are not, 
He has made a way in which we might be joined and reconciled, but he's also found a way in which he might use us in the world. Now, most of you will say here this morning, the first issue is a non-issue for me. I am already reconciled to God. I understand the gospel. I've put my faith in Jesus. I am a Christian. But isn't the second question a big issue for you? Don't you find yourself saying regularly, how can God possibly use me? He is so good. I am so bad. How can he possibly use me? And the message of Isaiah 6 is that God uses forgiven sinners. How can I preach to you today? Is it because I'm better than you? Is there anybody here who honestly thinks that the preacher is better than the pew sitter? Impossible, I hope. How is it you are able to go out and talk to a non-Christian friend or member of your family? We're all sinful people. And the only answer that comes in this wonderful passage of Isaiah 6 is that God not only knows how to forgive, but he then uses the forgiven. And that's why um, 6.5 is so important because Isaiah does a remarkable thing in the face of his recognition of his sinfulness, and that is, listen to this, he admits it. He does what we find it so difficult to get our non-Christian friends to do, and that is to despair. The whole world is interested in being affirmed and being positive and thinking the best. And this overwhelming message comes from the word of God to the world, which is that you must come to the point of despair and admit sin. And as soon as Isaiah admits his sin, he puts himself in an entirely different category from the rest of God's people. You think of five people who are in a burning building. One lady calls to the fireman, catch me, and jumps out the window. Think of five people who are caught in the rip of a surf. One man calls for the lifesaver. Think of five people who've been infected with a deadly disease. One asks for the antidote. What is the difference between the one and the others? It's not that they have different needs. They both have the same need. The difference is that the one admits. And as soon as the one admits, the one gets a solution. And as soon as the one gets the solution, the one is able to be part of passing on the solution. And that's what Isaiah does. He admits to God in an overwhelming sense, I'm in trouble. Can't do anything unless you help me. Many of us are uh, trying every now and again to pass on the gospel using the old ABC. Imagine somebody out of the blue says to you, what do Christians believe? And you go through the ABC. You say, well, we're people who admit that we have fallen short. B, we believe Jesus died to bridge the gulf. C, we have come to him. We have committed ourselves to him. Admit, believe, come. But the admit is so difficult to get people to believe, to do. There is a great hostility today to this admitting need or admitting sin. And I suspect that the devil invents on an hourly basis, if possible, 
new ways of stopping people from just admitting their need, their sin. I wonder whether he doesn't have a thousand um, dark advertising companies working to produce new ways of stopping people simply admitting or confessing their sin. So, for example, you've got people who say, well, let's invent a new God who's just loving and kind and doesn't talk about all this sin stuff, so much more pleasant. Or let's have a philosophy that people are basically good. Or let's be positive. Let's introduce just talk which affirms. Or let's allow people to choose their own spirituality, one that's meaningful to them. Or only fire and brimstone churches will talk about sin, so avoid those sort of churches. Let's distinguish, says another person, that I am basically good, but every now and again I just muck up a few times. Or why don't we concentrate on loving deeds rather than such negative words? And etc., etc., etc. People come up with a whole range of ways in which they might not get to the A of Christianity, which is to admit their sin and their need. Well, I hope you'll remember this little word, admit. Maybe you'll be standing in a queue to the opera or the the movies, and you'll have your little ticket in your hand, and it says something like, admit one. And you'll just remember this little word, admit. And, of course, you are going to be admitted... Now, why is a Christian admitted into God's fellowship or family? Because they have admitted their sin. And when we admit, it is the first step to him admitting us. Third thing, then, is the cleansing, the confession or the admission, which Isaiah utters is humanly crucial. It has to be done. But then comes the cleansing and the forgiving, and this is divinely crucial. Isaiah has called for God's help, and God swiftly gives it in verse 6 and 7. You see that one of the seraphs flew with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Now, the altar was where Old Testament sins were paid for. A sacrifice was placed on the altar to pay for the sin. And now God takes a symbol of the altar and rushes it to Isaiah as if to say, you have confessed your need, I have provided a solution, and I am bringing them together. The coal from the altar is the symbol of God's provision of a solution. Now, what is interesting is that although the altar was burning continually in the temple and Isaiah's people, the people of Isaiah's day, were running services on and on and on and on coming to this altar, it was doing them no good whatsoever because they had never matched confession with cleansing. It would almost be as if somebody were to come to church and take communion on a weekly basis for years and decades and never benefit from the communion. Because all the time the communion is calling out, there is a solution to sin, 
but the person has never dropped down on their knees and said, I need a solution to sin. And so the two wires have never come together. And that communion, which is offering and promising so much, has never actually found in the person who's eating the bread and drinking the wine a genuine needy person. Well, in the wonderful simplicity of these verses, Isaiah recognizes his need, confesses it, and God provides Now he's going to go and preach to his contemporaries and he's not just going to be conscious of sin, he's also going to be conscious of forgiveness. He's not going to go out and say, I'm a perfect man. He's going to go out and say, I'm a rescued man. And that's the great privilege of the preacher to his congregation or the Christian witnessing to his or her friends or family. We go out as a forgiven person. We're not superior. We have recognized that God is infinitely above us in holiness and that it's only his provision that has made it possible to have any relationship. And that's the news we want to pass on. So we don't just want people to admit their need. We also want people to believe the answer. We don't just want people to confess sin. We want people to take hold of Jesus. Now, there's no altar left. I hope everybody here in this building knows this. There are no altars left in the world as far as God is concerned. Uh, There is no coal to be grabbed to take to people. Do not rush out to anyone with a lump of coal. It won't, won't do them any good. What we have, of course, is another kind of altar, and that, of, that is the, the altar of the cross, Calvary, where Jesus was offered as the last sacrifice for our sin. And there is no altar with coal anymore. There is now an altar called the cross with a word. And the word, the message, which goes out from the cross, goes like this. It's finished. Salvation is accomplished. You can be forgiven. Salvation must be received. He's achieved it. You must receive it. And that's our message to the world. He achieved it. You receive it. I was reading some time ago of a preacher who was discussing the whole subject of believing with a Maasai tribesman. And uh, as this preacher described belief to the Maasai tribesman, the tribesman was shaking his head and said to him, your word for belief is much too weak. He said, the word you're using for belief is the word that we would use of a hunter who just pulls a trigger and knocks down an animal. He's distant. It's separated. There's no involvement. No, said the Maasai tribesman, our word for belief is the word for when the lion sees the prey, runs, grabs it, embraces it, and eats it. It's a very interesting contrast, isn't it? The person in the world or the pew, perhaps, whose view of belief is, I pull the trigger, I see something, yes, it's over there. But the real word for belief, the biblical word for belief, should be the word for the lion who takes hold of the gospel, takes hold of Christ, receives him, welcomes him. The last thing in our few verses this morning is the commission, verses 8 to 13. I say again, who will God use in order to be a blessing to his world? You might say, not me. Couldn't be me. And on your own, you're right. Couldn't be me either. 
on my own. It couldn't be me. God's not going to use the person who avoids him. God's not going to use the person who tries to impress him. God's not going to use the person who disqualifies himself or herself and says, I won't be used. But God will use the person, like Isaiah, who admits their need and believes the news. And Isaiah, you see in verse 8, has gone from despair to enthusiasm. Whom shall I send, says the Lord? And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. Now he's got a message which he'll take out to his world, and it's more than just talk, it's very, very meaningful. It's a message which he needed and everybody needs. And so he offers himself as a messenger. He finds in verses 9 and following that he's got a, a job to do, which is the toughest job in the world. And that is he has to preach a message which is going to judge or punish or harden the listeners. That's his job as a prophet to preach a message which is going to harden. We read in John 12 that there were people in Jesus' day, listen to this, who would not believe, and then God punished them, making them so they could not believe. They would not, and then they could not. It's a very interesting sequence. And that, sadly, is the situation is in Isaiah's day. They would not, and so they cannot. And Isaiah has this terrible job of taking the word of God, which is going to harden the people until God has done his job of disciplining or punishing. Just um, like sunshine, the word of God goes out and it melts butter and it hardens clay. And the sermon that is preached from a pulpit like this has a softening or a hardening effect. And it does what God purposes. That's why we need to pray on a regular basis that we as listeners would be softened, not hardened by the word. No wonder Isaiah says, how long do I have to do this for? Verse 11, how long, O Lord? God says to Isaiah, I want you to preach until the judgment has taken place, till the cities are ruined, till the houses are deserted, the fields are ravaged, until the Lord, verse 12, has sent everyone far away. Now that isn't the end of the message because in verse 13 there is the shoot or the stump or the seed. God never, you see, wipes out his people. He may cut back the dead wood, but he causes a stump or a seed which is going to spring up and be the source of new life. And we discover, of course, well down the track that this seed, this stump, is really Jesus and everybody who, as it were, comes to faith in him. Now, if we were to capture this vision of Isaiah 6 and put it into a simple summary, what would we say? We would say this, if a person could see God in heaven, it is almost certain that that would not just be a soft, easy experience, but it would be an unsettling and scary experience. Not because God is frightening, ugly, but because God is awesome, holy. And the steps that Isaiah is taken through in chapter 6, seeing what God is like, crying for help, receiving the mercy, telling other people, is exactly the sequence that Isaiah's people need to go through. They need to see what God is like again. 
They need to cry for mercy. They need to receive his cleansing. And they then need to be his instrument in his world. And that's, of course, how a person becomes a Christian. See their need, ask for help, receive Christ, become his follower and servant. And this chapter gives us great encouragement that God is in the gracious business of bringing people back to himself through forgiven sinners. And God is able and willing to use people like you and me in his service once we have followed the sequence of Isaiah 6. Well, let's pray together. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you revealed to Isaiah and have revealed to us in the Scriptures. And we pray that you would help us to respond rightly to you as you enabled Isaiah to. And we pray that you would help us to respond to you, not only in seeing you in your greatness and seeing our own need and gladly receiving the Lord Jesus, but also as people who go from here with a message which is of immense and eternal value for a needy world. So we thank you for your great grace to us. And we do pray that you would help us to live as those who've received it and as those who are ready to pass it on. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Start your day with life words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.